Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives today. And, Jim, let's begin with the good, and we're kind of using that in quotes today because, once again, we're talking about the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, and there's really nothing good about that other than the fact that he could potentially be going to prison for a very long time thanks to these new charges that are being filed in the Southern District of New York. But uh, a lot of the focus over the ensuing days this week has been on the role that current Labor Secretary Alex Acosta played on this case while he was the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of Florida uh, back in the last decade when this was all dealt with and the plea bargain was arranged that uh, did send Epstein to jail for a little while. Um, not long enough in the minds of many people. And, of course, the biggest criticism was that he didn't run it by the victims before agreeing to it. Uh, Acosta tried to defend himself a couple of days ago. Uh, by most accounts, he did okay, but it didn't uh, stop the furor. And uh, this morning, he told the president he was going to resign. And instead of Trump tweeting it out, he actually brought Acosta out to the press line while he was getting ready to board Marine One on Friday morning. So that's the sound in the background here as uh, Alex Acosta explains his decision to resign. Over the last week, I've seen a lot of coverage of the Department of Labor. And what I have not seen is the incredible job creation that we've seen in this economy, more than 5 million jobs. I haven't seen that workplace injuries are down, bucking a three-year trend. Workplace fatalities are down, bucking a three-year trend. That we had the safest year ever in mining, the lowest number of fatalities ever in mining. I have seen coverage of this case that is over 12 years old, that has input and vetting at multiple levels of Department of Justice. And as I look forward, I do not think it is right and fair for this administration's Labor Department to have Epstein as the focus rather than the incredible economy that we have today. And so I called the president this morning. I told him that I thought the right thing was to step aside. So there you go, Jim. Uh, I'm sure he'll get quite a bit of blowback for trying to dismiss it as a case that was resolved 12 years ago. But uh, it does clear the slate in terms of it not being the question of the day before the administration anymore. He will stay on for another week here. But uh, now the question becomes, where else does this coverage go? And uh, where does the media try to pin additional blame here? Yeah, to the extent this is good, it means that the story du jour day after day is not going to be, is Alexander Acosta going to resign today? By virtue of being in that position, he was giving every critic of the administration a easy stick to hit him with. I put it forth earlier in the week saying, does anybody want to defend Acosta and the way he handled the case? And somebody pointed out and said, look, you know, the Wall Street Journal editorial board said he followed proper procedure. Folks who know him reached out and said, look, he's a really good guy and nobody had any objections at the time. I suppose I could see that. I, I do think, you know, as you said, not running it by the victims seems really inexcusable in retrospect. I also find the willingness to give such a very lenient sentence to a guy committing crimes on this scale really seems odd and inexplicable. I, I just don't understand if you're a prosecutor how you don't want to take a guy like this and just nail his hide to the wall. And the great irony, of course, is that Acosta had done that in other big, high profile drug lords and, you know, um, it, it was a, again, I don't think there's any way you can look at and say, oh, well, this was really terrific judgment on his part. Is it fair that this is coming along and derailing his career in July, 2019? 
Maybe not. But in the end, the interesting question will be, after these initial arrests and after this initial prosecution, did that stop Epstein? Or did he continue doing this on other venues and other places? And if so, didn't you basically let a monster back out onto the streets a lot quicker than you otherwise would have, even if you'd rolled the dice and taken it to trial? Now, as you said, the, the big question here is this has been a you know, this, this has been a weird story. Those of us who, who paid attention to this remember the stories about the Lolita Express back in 2016. And of course, if you're on the right, you probably heard about it in the context of Bill Clinton. Now, obviously, a lot of folks in the mainstream media are like, hey, also, there's a comment from Trump several years ago talking about what a swell guy he is. And there's this creepy comment from Trump saying he likes women even younger than I do. Look, OK, we got the Acosta angle out of the way, media. How much are we going to focus on this? Or is this story going to disappear? It's been very weird to see the initial case against Epstein began. The Miami Herald basically forced the reopening of the case with this giant reporting. And when the uh, the deal with Acosta became clear, and then, of course, the prosecutors up in New York brought new charges today. I don't want this story to go away. As we discussed earlier this week, there's a bunch of things that really don't add up about the sequence of events. You know, if you want to throw grief at Acosta, go right ahead. I think he's earned it. However, there's this weird detail in which one of the prosecutors of uh, office of the Manhattan district attorney tried to prevent him from getting classified as the most dangerous kind of sexual offender. And the judge says, I've never seen that happen before in which the prosecutor is effectively acting as the defense attorney. The NYPD, he was supposed to check in with the NYPD every 90 days. He never did it for eight or nine years. No consequences. That seems really weird. Acosta got asked about rumors going around that, uh, that Epstein may have had some sort of tie to an intelligence service. Acosta responded with basically word salad. Like to me, that's a yes or no question, right? You're the prosecutor. You're familiar with the case. You should be able to say either yeah or no. And if that's the case, this opens up a whole other can of worms of was he blackmailing people? Was he doing it on, on behalf of some foreign intelligence service? I can't imagine it would be our own intelligence service. If that's the case, it's going to be the biggest scandal of all time. Just one weird situation of another. And the question of you know, how many powerful and influential people knew what was really going on in Epstein's mansion and places like that. So, you know, I mean, how do you, how does a place get the reputation, the nickname pedophile island and not spur, like if you're the local cops, how do you not say, hey, you know what, I'm going to check out that place. <laughs> let's, let's open up, let's just see what we find there because those rumors probably don't spring out of nowhere. So I hope the story doesn't get d- dropped. I hope this doesn't suddenly become a much less interesting story without the Trump cabinet angle Obviously, everybody in, in our world of conservatives, Greg, is salivating practically over the possibility that uh, there's some sort of significant tie to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton's public statement about this is already contradicted by known facts and media accounts and FAA flight records and things like that. Um, stay on this media. Don't drop it just because the cost is going away, because I think there's a lot more meat on this bone and a lot more questions that need to be answered. Yeah, kind of staggering that the media given how many factual inaccuracies were in Clinton's statement, just kind of said, well, there's a statement. Anyway, let's talk about Alex Acosta. Yeah, does he deserve some grief? Sure, but you'd think the primary angle of this story is the deal that uh, Acosta signed off on. And it's an angle. I think it's part of the story, but it, you know, the, the proportion of coverage of it to the other rich and famous people associated with Epstein is really... You, you can see what's driving the traffic these days, Greg. Yes, exactly. And... Um... Who else might have been part of this should be a really important topic for the people covering this story. We'll see if that changes now that Acosta has announced he will be resigning. 
All right, let's move on to our bad martini now, Jim. And we're not sure just how bad this is, but there's certainly some bad elements to it. The Texas Republican Party is sending out fundraising emails, which is no surprise. Uh, You and I probably get a lot of these in our inbox, especially around the end of the quarter. And if you can just send in 10 bucks or 50 bucks or 100 bucks, we've got to reach this goal by the end of the quarter or we're just doomed. And the parties do that, too. So this Republican Party email in Texas says, if you don't show up for Trump in 2020, there's a high chance it will cost him the election. This is Newsweek reporting now. The GOP email claimed that the Democrats are promising open borders to illegal immigrants, though no 2020 Democratic candidate has said they support open borders. That's certainly debatable. Quote, they want to take every last penny from your paycheck and control how you live to pay for their socialist policies and systems. The email continued. It ended by asking for a donation to the Trump campaign. So Newsweek asks, is the GOP fear-mongering for donations or do they actually fear that the solidly red state is rapidly shifting to the left? They mentioned Beto O'Rourke coming close but ultimately losing to Ted Cruz last year in the Senate race. And recent polling shows... Trump beating every major Democratic presidential candidate except Joe Biden, although it's much closer than the nine-point win he had in 2016 over Hillary Clinton. So, Jim, fundraising pitches, even the desperate ones, are pretty common these days in politics, regardless of whether the pitch behind them is backed up with a lot of truth. So what do you make of Texas doing this Oh, several months beyond a year ahead of the election? Yeah, I kind of would rather they didn't, not just for you know reasons of because you're wondering, I'd never donate to any candidate or campaign. Um, I'd like to say that's a principled viewpoint as a journalist, because I cover these people. I don't want to be seen as tainted by financial donations to them. But it also is because I'm really cheap uh, and, and just don't want to. But the, the point is, is that, you know, is that you get these, you know, if you don't donate right now, we're, we're, we're all going to die. But also we've got a you know, generous donor who will match every donation. <laughs> well, why not go to that guy? What are you nagging me for? But when you when you go with this desperate, you know, help us or we're all all is doomed, you know, tone. I mean, that must be effective because you see so much of it. But it also kind of gives people it feeds narratives. Right. The question, of are, are you genuinely worried or you just, you know, want to raise money? And the idea of Trump losing Texas, I don't think it's likely, but it's not you know, an otherworldly, you know, uh, scenario. He won by nine points in 2016 against Hillary Clinton which doesn't sound that bad, except, you know, we're used to Republicans winning by healthy double-digit margins. I think we really got uh, spoiled by having George W. Bush on the on the ballot for a while because he was winning Texas by huge margins. And you're bit by bit, you know, the usual Californication that goes on in a whole bunch of other states, people from more liberal places move into there. The margin in 2016 was not overwhelming. For perspective, his margin in Texas was about the same as it was in Ohio. And people don't think of Ohio as being a great, you know, deep red Wyoming level state. They think of Ohio as a purple state that's turning red. You know, maybe, uh, you know, Texas is one of those states that's red and turning kind of magenta here. Do you need to panic about it? No. You know, worst case scenario, maybe you do have to sweat Texas. Texas is a very expensive state. By the way, I think a portion of this is stylistic. George W. Bush being a local helps a great deal. I think if you have candidates who either have ties to Texas or uh, styled, uh, you know, that, that basically are of the Texas culture, you're probably going to do a little bit better than the, you know, billionaire Manhattan, you know, mogul <laughs> out there. You know, again, I think Trump is going to win. But when the Texas Republican Party is running around messages like this, one, you give Newsweek the excuse to write these kinds of stories. And maybe there is a little bit of truth to that. So 
Um, I think if you're, you know, I, I understand the fundraising, the interests of the party's messaging as a whole and the interests of the fundraising wing of the party are completely at odds. Right. The party as a whole wants to give this confident, reassuring message. And the fundraising one needs to say, if you don't write a check right now, we will turn Soviet overnight. And, uh, you know, I think it's a it's inevitably going to cause headaches and maybe feed into a panic narrative. Because if it really is true and they really are worried about Texas, then 2020 is going to be a disaster for Republicans. Oh, absolutely. Right. Here's uh, what I would like to see. Can't really do it with parties so much, uh, but with candidates who say, if we don't reach this goal by the end of the quarter, we don't know how we'll continue. They should have to not continue at that point. Or- <laughs> there you go. We didn't meet your goal. Bob, we're hanging around anyway. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, we lied. Let's move on to our crazy martini now. And we're really not uh, trying to find a way to include Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez into the three martini lunch so often. But uh, she makes it so easy. And on the days where she's not, her staff is. Yesterday, we talked about the back and forth between AOC and Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi telling uh, the rebels in her caucus not to tweet out their criticisms, but to take it to her personally. AOC wonders why she's always going after people of color. Now it's the chief of staff yet again who's getting headlines for Ocasio-Cortez. It was just a couple of weeks ago when the Democrats in the House agreed with the Senate Republicans on the border aid bill and the uh, chief of staff for AOC said that uh, they were going back to the 1940s in their treatment of uh, black and brown people. That didn't go over too well. And now he's at it again. Fox News. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's chief of staff recently admitted that the Green New Deal was not conceived as an effort to deal with climate change, but instead a how-do-you-change-the-entire-economy thing, a remark likely to fuel Republican claims that the deal is nothing more than a thinly-veiled socialist takeover of the U.S. economy. Quote, the interesting thing about the Green New Deal is it wasn't originally a climate thing at all, Saikat Chakrabarty, hope I'm saying that right, said in May, according to the Washington Post. He reportedly made the remarks to Sam Ricketts, climate director for 2020 hopeful and Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who the Post says greeted the statement with an attentive poker face. Quote, do you guys think of it as a climate thing, Chakrabarty said then? Because we really think of it as a how do you change the entire economy thing. The Green New Deal, once an idea on the fringe of the left of the Democratic Party, has picked up significant mainstream support this year with a number of top 2020 contenders signing their names to a non-binding resolution pushed by AOC and Senator Ed Markey. So, Jim, this doesn't shock us. This is what we thought they were doing all along, but it's kind of nice that they're admitting it. And uh, seeing the disarray now inside Camp AOC is also kind of fun. Yeah, a couple of weird aspects of this. For starters... Greg, you know, you, I, you've, you're in cover Washington a great deal. Off the top of your head, how many chiefs of staff of members of Congress can you name? Very few. And how often do you see him doing interviews? Not very often. Right? I mean, if you're, if you're a staffer, your job is not to make you look good. Your job is to make your boss look good. And for a lot of these, you know, occasionally a you know, press secretary or staffers will, you know, uh, answer questions from reporters. But you, you don't delve into, here's our, you know, Here's our messaging, and here's what we really think of all these sorts of things and stuff like that. That is strange. And my whole morning jolt today, usually I cover a variety of topics, but just watching the the chaos and the circus around AOC uh, and what Nancy Pelosi is calling the squad really kind of got my dander up. And I kind of you know, look. Somebody said this is the kind of the quintessential millennial sense of entitlement. AOC has been on the job six months, and already she's telling the boss how to do things. <laughs> <laughs> And so this kind of this mentality of 
I just got here. I don't have lots of legislative experience before. We've all heard the comments about her being a bartender. But here I am, Nancy Pelosi and, and other centrist Democrats. Let me tell you how to do things. And oh, by the way, in the meantime, my chief of staff is going to completely step on our message <laughs> that this needs to be done to save the planet and say, no, no, really, this is mostly about economics and transferring us to socialism. Right? I mean, like, you, you know, this is amateur hour, right? This is, this is the sort of thing where like, you, if you were... You know, it's tough for us on the right to try to get into the mindset of the left, but they can't be that happy about this. They can't. There's no. You think the rest of the House Democratic Caucus is saying, "Hey, that's great. Yeah, let's let's drop the, the climate thing. Let's say the Green New Deal really isn't that much about climate change, global warming, stuff like that. It's really mostly about completely overhauling the entire economy. That you know, we want to change even as unemployment is below five. Like we're at Dow twenty seven thousand, right? This is not a deep recession. This is not another Great Depression. This is not the worst of times. And the Democratic message is going to be, we want to completely change everything about the economy. You know, this is, you know, this is what happens when you let people who, in my view, you know, popular, people who tout themselves as populist outsiders. I'm not part of those, that Washington machine. I'm not part of the D.C. crowd, which means I have no idea how things work. <laughs> I, mean, I have no idea how to influence my colleagues. It means the moment I have a disagreement with my colleagues, I jump onto social media and I complain about them like I'm trying to get the attention of Delta Airlines because they lost my luggage. Or I had really bad service at a chain restaurant or something like that. No, guess what? You complain about these people on Tuesday, you still need to work with them on Wednesday. If I at National Review decide to complain about my coworkers every single opportunity and jump on social media... <laughs> I'd have real problems, even you know, if, assuming I stayed around that long. Same thing with you and Radio America and probably most of our listeners. Guess what, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? You can't fire other members of the staff, other members of the House. The only tool you've got is persuasion. And none of this is working. And having your, you know, the first thing is probably to say, everybody on my staff, stop talking to, stop talking to the media and providing your own messaging, right? The second thing is get united on your messaging. Third of all, stop fighting and you know, publicly calling out all your colleagues and the fact that they're not doing that is probably really good news for conservatives. But I think it's this broader kind of, kind of you know, the culture here. You know, if, if a year from now or two years from now, three years from now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is sitting there thinking, why haven't we passed the, the Green New Deal? Why do I have so little influence with my colleagues? Why do people not vote the way I want? Look, it's because of the, the method she uses. This is, these are the consequences of that. And uh, while it's great for us, I certainly hope enough people are learning the lessons from that. Look, you want to win friends and influence people and get your way in a legislature, read about LBJ and the Robert Caro books. Study the people who actually did it successfully rather than deciding, I'm a revolutionary. There's nothing in the past that could possibly uh, educate me or illuminate something for me. Well, this is uh, interesting in a number of levels because, first of all, for the second day in a row, you've given the Democrats good advice, which makes me a little bit nervous. But uh, oh, if they oh, want, no, they would listen. <laughs> I'd be, I'd be much more, you know, circumspect. Secondly, if there was a uh, very popular initiative on the right and a chief of staff or someone like that basically said that the stated reason that was uh, behind the legislation, because there was some sort of crisis, was really bunk. I'm pretty sure that other people who are more prominent would be asked about it. And so I'm wondering if somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who has publicly endorsed the Green New Deal, will ever be asked about this in the next few days because AOC and uh, all these other people uh, have been pushing the Green New Deal. And now we know exactly why they're doing it. Those of us at the time were, were you know, looking at this and saying, besides all the jokes about cow farts and stuff like that, 
that even, let's say, um, retrofitting buildings to make them more energy efficient is a good thing. In fact, I think it is a good thing. I think most people would agree, oh, okay, you know, I want to pay less in my heating bills, my air conditioning bills, put more insulation in there, take care of, like, all kinds of things could be a good idea. Uh, yeah, you want to put solar panels on the top of your house? Go right ahead, right? You know, but the idea that we're going to do this to every building in America within a decade... Right? I mean, like, you know, the fact that this was clearly was the sort of thing was dreamt up by somebody who never actually had to install a solar panel, <laughs> who never actually had to do, but where's that draft coming from? Or to get Owens Corning insulation and, and all that kind of stuff into their attic. You know, this stuff is, this stuff is hard to do for the average homeowner. Never mind the idea of doing it on a national scale. And it's, you know, the idea of what happens when people live in this theoretical life and have very little practice with the actual changes they want to enact there. And of course, um, it's always 10 years from now because nothing's going to happen until 2021. So even if the Democrats win across the board, they'll push the, 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 the goal line to 10 years beyond that. If the Republicans hold the Senate, but Democrats win the White House and keep the House, it'll be 10 years from 2023 uh, because they've got to keep the goal line out there. If they actually cross it, then they lose their purpose for passing this. And so it's always just a little bit further down the road. Yeah, I was going to say, look, in the end, this is um, what separates the new socialists from the old socialists, Greg. Yes. They used to be into five-year plans. <laughs> but a 10-year goal is twice as good as a five-year plan. Oh, man. I love it when they're honest. It really makes our job so much easier. Jim, have a fantastic weekend. We'll talk to you on Monday. See you Monday, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review, also the author of Between Two Scorpions. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Have a great weekend and tune in again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch.